Hi, I'm Michael G. Williams, and welcome to Social Distancing Radio. I'm a novelist, and a reader and friend of mine asked if I would record myself reading one of my novels as something they would find comforting and familiar in the midst of the uncertainty and anxiety of the COVID-19 pandemic. I'll be reading to you from Perishables, the first book in my five-book urban fantasy and vampire series, The Withrow Chronicles, published by Falstaff Books, aka FalstaffBooks.com. If you'd like to pick up a copy for yourself, head over to bit.ly, that's B-I-T dot L-Y, slash Perishables link. That goes to Amazon. Thanks. Welcome to the third installment of me reading Perishables to you. Perishables, the first book of the Withrow Chronicles. At this point in the story, Withrow has explained that he is a vampire. He lives in the suburbs. He's on his neighborhood association's executive board. He has shown up at their potluck meeting for their uh, spring board meeting. And he has, A, a bunch of neighbors that appear not to like him. And B, just heard a car accident in the distance. I doubt it will surprise you to learn the vampires have remarkably keen senses. I heard screeching tires and a car horn and then the distinctive tin can crunch of metal against an obstacle, and I could tell from the sound that it was probably three blocks away. No one else had heard it at first, so when I looked up and around towards the windows at the front of the house and the street beyond, the others all started in surprise. Hear something? Kathy asked. The slight tremor in her voice told me she and Herb and Franklin had grown weary spending the last 15 minutes walking on eggs. She was jumpy. I looked at her for a moment and nodded towards the window. Thought I heard something, but it could just be my imagination. The others looked towards the windows too, even Mary Lou, and then I heard the horn again. Was that a car? Franklin looked out in that general direction. I, I paused, considered, and then I went on. I'd swear I heard a car accident just a second ago. I set down the last of the current biscuit, but, you know, it could be anything. I looked the other direction at the French doors off the dining room, and Smiles was still sitting there watching me. He's a pretty good gauge of when weird stuff's going down, but he can also be misleading. His only job is to protect me. If people are dead in the street, he doesn't really give a damn unless I'm one of them. Killer, on the other hand, forgot Smiles just long enough to run to the fence and start yapping his head off. The car horn sounded again, closer this time, and then headlights splayed against the front of the house. The horn was more insistent than before, and Franklin walked to the front windows to survey what he could see beyond the shrubs they'd placed there for privacy. Someone's just pulled in the drive, he announced. I knew that something very bad was about to happen because from outside I could hear smiles start to growl. I wasn't going to start crazy paranoia talk out of the blue, so I sat there at the table and watched the living room and foyer. Franklin stood in the bay windows, watching the car in the driveway, and narrated for us as the guy got out of the car and ran up the front walk to the door. What's he look like? Mary Lou asked, and Franklin shrugged at her in the dramatic, both hands out to the side, both shoulders pumping up and down way of an actor on stage. He's just some guy, Franklin said, but he was cut off by the doorbell ringing frantically. Ring-a-ring, ring-a-ring, ring-a-ring. And then the guy started beating on the front door and shouting something we couldn't make out. Aren't you going to answer it? Mary Lou had stood from the table and was trying to shout over the noise, Franklin looking back at her uncertainly. His hand hadn't moved from the blinds. He hadn't moved from the window. Answer it, 
Mary Lou shouted, and Franklin took two hesitating steps to the door. In those few seconds, the guy's shouts had become less complicated and more coherent. Whatever he was yelling before was just a muffled jumble of syllables, but now it was easy to make out. Help me, there's been an accident, he was saying. Help me, please. I need to call the police. Kathy and Herb were still sitting at the table with me, and I noticed that they had briefly touched hands under the table, both looking to the other for reassurance. Definitely lovers. They weren't going to do anything, and it didn't look like Franklin would either. I started to stand up, my napkin falling out of my lap and into the middle of my plate, but Mary Lou had already made for the door. The guy was still tap dancing on the doorbell, so I couldn't make out what Mary Lou said to her husband as she went by him, but it was ugly, and her face was set just as hard as an anvil. With one twist of the knob and a practiced sweep of her other hand, she'd undone the deadbolt and yanked the front door open. The stylized, decorative ukulele on the back of it, tiny with three strings instead of four, little wooden spheres suspended on twine such that they would bang against the strings when the door opened, twanged a wild chord, and the others all jumped a little in anticipation of what they might see. The stranger on their doorstep was, in fact, just some guy. He was in his late 20s or early 30s, maybe, dressed in khaki slacks and a solid-color Oxford button-up. His close-cropped black hair and his coffee-colored skin cooperated to make him look a little younger than he might actually be, and his wide red eyes and choked speech indicated that whatever had happened out there, he was just now started sobbing over it. His head was turned away from the house in the direction he'd come, but when the door opened, he whipped back around and stared at Mary Lou, lips quivering for a long moment before he said anything. Holy fuck, he mumbled. His voice strangled and high-pitched. Oh, God, we're going to have to call an ambulance. I just ran some guy over in the street. Other than his voice reaching for the top end of the scale and shaking wildly, he sounded pretty together. Shock, I figured. Turned out I was right, because he interrupted Mary Lou when she started to say something in response. But he shook his head at her, and she was quiet. But then it happened again, he said. We all blinked at once. Franklin. Mary Lou was very calm. Go and get the telephone and call 911. Franklin was quick to obey and disappeared into the kitchen immediately. Mary Lou had never taken her eyes off the kid at the door and this time he let her talk. Now, she said, voice even, tell me exactly what happened so that we can help you. She reached out and took the kid's elbow and led him out of the doorway into the foyer and closed and locked the door behind him. He sank into an armless chair between two large fake plants, a chair I'm pretty sure Mary Lou would only let someone use in the event of an emergency, so the kid at least had that going for him, and took two deep, ragged breaths. Actually, first, Mary Lou added, have you checked on either of them? Do they need first aid? The kid shook his head and his eyes went wild all of a sudden, his pupils wide like saucers and the whites bulging out at me. Trust me when I say that I know the look of mortal terror on a human being. This was that, and everyone in the room recognized it from first-hand experience or from ancestral menace memory. It's interesting, actually, that there's been research done on this. There is an evolutionary advantage in people looking all crazy when they're real scared. One article about it said, basically, that it's how cavemen knew when someone was coming up behind them. Bottom line, when one person sees another person do that, eyes wide, pupils dilated, whites of their eyes just all over the place, it produces fear in the observer as well as the observed. It triggers the fight-or-flight mechanism. It does not trigger that in vampires because a lot of the basic human instincts simply shut down after the big bite. 
That doesn't mean it gives us warm fuzzy, though. In the movies, it's always Dracula running around with that stupid grin. His, fang, his fangs hanging out like a TV antenna got stuck in his windpipe. People screaming up and down the countryside. It isn't like that for us. Not really. We, well, the smart ones anyway. Try to avoid creating fear as much as possible. Fear gets people talking. Fear makes it hard to keep something secret and it makes people overreact. When humans start shuffling around and looking at each other for guidance, we start hoping they've got their torches and pitchforks well out of reach. Fear makes people do crazy things. No, they don't need first aid, the kid said, shaking his head. I wondered what the hell was taking Franklin so long with 911. No, they, uh... The kid threw his hands up to his face and pushed back the skin around his eyes. They're dead, he mumbled, and they look dead. They look really dead. We were sitting in silence, and then the kid went on after a second or two. They look like they've been dead a long, long time. Kathy and Herb both held their breath, and Mary Lou wrinkled up her forehead. What do you mean? I mean they were corpses, he said after a second. I mean, there were corpses in the street. Dead bodies in the street? The Mary Lou Reinhold that asked this question was not one human being being concerned for another. She was the wife of the president of the London Town Neighborhood Association. Dead bodies walking around, the kid said. And then he turned to one side and puked his guts out all over one of Mary Lou's plastic plants. Franklin chose that moment to emerge from the kitchen. I called 911. They said the police would be here soon. He looked at all of us, looked at the kid trying to wipe his mouth on his sleeve, looked back at Mary Lou. They said they were already close by, so it would be quick. Franklin's expression was one of confusion and bewilderment. Mary Lou looked down at the stranger, then up at Franklin and made a motion with one hand against her other arm. I realized she was trying to mime injecting something. She thought the kid was drug-addled. Okay, she said to him, taking a step back, and Franklin did the same, very casually. So what's your name? Jeremy, he coughed. Jeremy, Mary Lou said very gently. We've called the police, and they're on their way to help. In the meantime, I think if we go outside and look again, you're going to find that you've imagined something very terrible, and it's shaken you up very badly. Mary folded her hands together in front of her. Do you want to go outside and check? Jeremy looked at her with his red-rimmed eyes and then looked over to the door and shook his head violently. No way, lady, he panted. No way am I going back out there. Well, Jeremy, that's up to you. Mary Lou was 110% condescension. I'm going to go see, and I'll be right back. Before anyone could say anything, though, Franklin did at least open his mouth for just a moment. She'd whipped the front door back open and gone out, pulling it shut behind her. Kathy and Herb were looking intently at one another, both hands still clasped under the corner of the dining room table, and I could hear smiles growling again outside. Killer was barking his stupid little walnut of a brain out. No one noticed as I slipped in perfect silence out the French doors onto the back porch. I may be a lumbering fat ass, but any vampire worth his salt at least knows his way around some gauzy curtains and a simple door latch. And that's the third installment, or whatever installment, of me reading from Perishables to you. Come back tomorrow, and you'll get to hear the next installment. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. 
This podcast is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. The theme music is Plucked Contemporary Boom by Kara Square, available under a Creative Commons attribution license at ccmixter.org.